Today we have Tim Bratz on the show. Are you looking for a way to build wealth? Tim Bratz is an expert in multifamily and built his portfolio to over 4,000 units. He's also created online boot camps and masterminds to help others do the same. He describes himself as a blue-collar guy from Cleveland. But get this, Tim just crossed off one of his goals from 15 years ago. He bought an island. (laughs) Yes, that's right, an island. Listen to this episode to learn from Tim Bratz, a guy who's been there and done that. Before we jump into the intro, if you have interest in learning how to invest passively, check out my five-step process for passively investing in real estate. You can download it for free by going to darrenbatchelder.com backslash learn and then select the free PDF. Now, onto the intro. Welcome to Darren Batchelder's Real Estate Investing Show. Each week, you will learn how to grow your wealth through real estate investing, be introduced to the players that are getting it done, and learn how you can get involved. And now, here's your host, Darren Batchelder. A little background on Tim Bratz before we start the show. Tim lives in Charleston, South Carolina with his family. He started with one single family property and grew to over 4,000 units. Tim is a take action guy and he fills his mind with positivity. There is absolutely no distracting this guy from reaching his goals. Now, onto the show. Hello, everyone. Today we have a very special guest. We've got Tim Bratz on the line here. Tim, appreciate you coming on the show. Darren, appreciate the invite, man. Excited to be here, buddy. Absolutely. So just a little bit on how I know Tim. Um, this is actually our first time talking together, but I know of Tim through social media. Um, and I've had a lot of people um, just in conversations saying that they've either gone to one of his events or have worked with him and um, have nothing but great things to say. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Um, Tim, appreciate you coming on. The first thing I typically ask is how many properties and how many units are you currently invested in? Yeah. So um, well, again, I appreciate you having me. Huge honor to be here. Any way that I can provide value, I'd, I'd love to. So I'm an open book on any of this stuff. Uh, currently, I have I was up to about 4,800 doors, 4,840, and I just sold about 800 of them though. So I'm hovering right around 4,000 doors currently. I'm going to sell probably another yeah, three or 400, which probably drop down to 35, 3,600 over the next 30 days. And then we have some new acquisitions that are, that are hitting the, the pipeline as well. So I'll jump up to about 4,000 by the end of the year. That is fantastic. So I want to get into a little bit of your history in terms of how you got into the real estate space. But uh, before we do that, um, I'm going to go that much further back, like your childhood, man. Where'd you grow up? How many people, um, brothers, sisters, rich, poor, you know, were you motivated back then? Kind of what, you know, how'd you grow up? Yeah. um, Grew up in blue collar Cleveland, Ohio. So uh, one of four kids and 
Uh, my dad was a police officer, and then my mom was had a teaching degree, but she was really essentially a stay-at-home mom with with all the kids. And then, um, you know, by the time I was born, my dad, I have two older brothers, my dad uh, had worked his way through the police force, and they were paying for like his higher education stuff. So he had actually earned a, an associate's degree, a bachelor's degree, a master's degree, and then a PhD by the Holy time. Cow. As Red, a police Red officer. As a police officer, yep. And so then he was like teaching um, at the local community college. And then that also turned into like some opportunities for him to create like a personnel security business for local hospitals, factories, foundries, apartments all around Cleveland. And he would take like the jobs that the big guys wouldn't take. And he was like the best of the small guys, you know? And so um, he had a part-time business. He had, he worked multiple jobs all the time. And uh, I wouldn't say we were rich, but we were, um, you know, middle-class and, uh, you know, my parents definitely lived on less to give us more kind of a thing. And, uh, and I think that's what kind of gave me some good insights on the hard work and also uh, kind of the rich dad, poor dad mentality. Although my dad um, you know, lived more like a rich dad of, of that, hey, let me start a business and let me, let me um, create value and do some of these things. He always told us to go to work, get good grades, you know, go to school, all that kind of stuff so you can get a good job. And, um, and I was always like, dad, but you're making money over here. I, you know, like right. this is where majority of your money's coming from versus like 60, $70,000 a year on the police force. And I was like, you're making a lot more part-time in your business than you are in your full-time job. And, um, and so it just, that opened my eyes to business ownership, entrepreneurship, um, work ethic. And, uh, and then just, you know, the idea of owning my own business and that, that, that always like appealed to me. I never really liked being told what to do. So I always like hustled a little bit and just created ways to make money and didn't really like working for other people. Uh, so I would like, I would like burn CDs, right? Like when Napster and Audio Galaxy and all these, um, uh, you could burn music and then turn it onto a CD and I'd sell mixed CDs. I'd cut my buddy's hair all the time. I was like the, the haircut guy and I'd cut everybody's hair um, in high school and college and made some money that way. And then just kind of, um, you know, had some odd jobs and that kind of stuff. And then got into more entrepreneurship, had my own painting business in college. And that's what really, I would say, really ignited the entrepreneur piece of like, oh, I like this. I call the shots. I'm not answering to anybody. I can actually dictate what my value is versus somebody else telling me what am I worth and paying me an hourly wage. Absolutely. So what was interesting is when you first said that your dad was a police officer, I'm thinking... All right. Well, you grew up with a dad who, you know, was a W-2 guy, but you saw that he, he was an entrepreneur also, and he had these other side hustles and you kind of picked up on that and you're like, you know what, you're, you're actually making more money off these side hustles, off these other businesses. And that sparked something in you. So at an early age, it sounded like you wanted, you knew you wanted to go off and do your own thing at some point. Yeah, I, I would say so. I th I've always been I've always been motivated. I don't know if it's for money or achievement or, or what it was, but you know, I wanted to be a doctor for a while. I even went through a phase where I wanted to be an attorney because uh, I thought that it, I didn't really understand entrepreneurship and how you start your own business. So I was looking at the white collar professions. And then once I understood, once I got to college that, oh, I can go and start my own business. And I can uh, you know, paint people's houses. They pay me this much. I pay the guys this much. I have this much in material and I keep this much in profit. Oh, look at, all right, let's, how many of these can I do? How many crews can I run? How many, you know, and then that turned into when I was in college, everybody was making money in real estate. So 03 to 07 is when I was in college and people were like, get involved in real estate if you want to build wealth. 
And so I interned for a big home builder. Um, and I was like, I, I remember they, the, the VP on a Monday morning meeting just brought in a stack of $100 bills. And he's like, somebody give me a good idea. And he would just start handing out $100 bills for people who didn't even give good ideas. Even people with bad ideas still got $100 bills. And I was like, what world do we live in right now? Right, I want to be in that out. meeting. <laughs> yeah, I was like, what? And, uh, and so that really got me excited about real estate investing. And then uh, I moved out to New York City after college, got my real estate license because I thought that's how everybody got involved in real estate. And I started brokering leases and uh, like retail leases, office leases. And I just saw how much money there was, man, on the, on the ownership side versus the brokerage side. And I was like, that's where I need to be. So that's when I moved down to Charleston, South Carolina, 2008 and wanted to become a real estate investor. And then that, the market collapsed, right? And uh, it's kind of good timing though, because I, I didn't do anything stupid. Like uh, I probably, I definitely would have taken out no doc loans and state and income loans and like all that kind of stuff. If I would have just been a year or two older um, and got into real estate at that point. But fortunately I got into real estate right at the end of 2008 when the market's collapsing and into 2009 is when I bought my first actual rental property. So do you still live in, is that where you live now? Is it in, in Charleston? Yeah, went, went back and forth a little bit. I uh, lived in Charleston until about end of 2012, moved back to Cleveland um, for about seven years and came back down to Charleston uh, during COVID. Came back down here and we're, we're here full time now. Fantastic. A good market. The Carolinas, Nashville, awesome. South Florida, Texas. I mean, Phoenix, all great growth markets in, t in today's market. So you're in a good spot. Yep, very much so. So you bought your first investment property in 2009. What did you learn from that and how did that propel you forward? Uh, yeah, the, the, the market back in 2009 was very different than it is today, right? Today, uh, there's, a, there's an abundance of capital and very hard to find deals, or at least it, there's not really a lot of low-hanging fruit kind of deals. You got to really search, turn over a lot of rocks in order to find the opportunities. Um, opposite market in 2009. In 2009, there were deals everywhere. You couldn't walk down the street without tripping over three foreclosures that were being given away for pennies on the dollar. And at the same time, money was nowhere, at least for a 23-year-old kid who'd never done a deal before. Right. Like that money just wasn't existent. I know banks were still lending, but they were only lending to people with big balance sheets, with a lot of liquidity, who, who were proven track records in, uh, in owning and operating real estate. So I, I you know, I'm 23, none of my friends have any money, right? Any, any money that they're bringing in, they're, they're drinking away at the bar. Um, my family, although they love me, they didn't respect me enough as a real estate investor to give me sure. money on my first deal in 2008, uh, 2009. And so the only person who was lending me money, man, was, was a guy named MasterCard. And I was like, hey, MasterCard, I need a raise. Or I need an increase in my limit. And so I called up MasterCard, they increased my limit from 3,000 to $15,000, which, crazy to me. And, uh, but they increased my limit and I bought the house on my credit card. I, I bought it with a balance transfer check. I found the cheapest house in the MLS and made an offer on it. Um, it was listed at 25. I came in at uh, 12. They came back at 20. I came back at 14, which is the highest I could pay. And they ended up accepting it. And that first wow. house, I did all the work. You know, I did, um, I, I did it for a lot of the houses, a lot of the properties that I, that I bought, but that first one, it was like a learning curve for me where I figured out how to change out carpet. I figured out how to change out light fixtures. I painted it. I landscaped it. Um, I did, I, I, I did all the work. And then 
I figured out how do we sell this thing? And I hosted a, um, an open house. I put out a bunch of bandit signs and, and you know, uh, painted the town with flyers. And all of a sudden had a bunch of people come out. And then one of the neighbors came in and bought the house for $33,000. In about 110 days, I made about 13, maybe $14,000 on that deal. In the worst housing recession ever. Right oh. in, in in my first deal, you basically ever, doubled a, your money, a, right? I mean, as a punk twenty-three year old, and I'm like, you know what? I just so every and, and what what was really eye-opening for me was like the same real estate market happened to everybody, you know, the same market. But some people were able to sink, or some people sank, and then some other people swam, right? right? And I was like, how can the same market happen to everybody? And some people got rich off of it, and other people are going totally broke off of it. Well, that that opened my eyes to, it's not about the market and what happens to us, it's how do we respond to what happens to us? How do we, uh, what's our business model? What's our business strategy? What's our investment strategy? What kind of deals are we buying? And I went through this, this, uh, uh, this phase of just studying the people who were worth tens of millions and then went broke, and what kind of deals did they buy? What did their business model look like? And the people who were worth tens of millions and now are worth hundreds or billions of dollars. And I just studied that in my own local market and then at, at a, uh, on a national level too. And I realized many different things and how my business is today is based off of a lot of that stuff. So, so you know, share I, a few, few of those things. Yeah. So um, one is I, I always buy at a discount, right? I don't pay real t- retail price for really anything. I always buy at a discount. So if you're buying at a discount, you got a lot of exit strategies, a lot of different options. Um, so buying at a discount was, was a big deal, buying at a wholesale price. Secondly, I create appreciation. I don't speculate on it. I create it, I force appreciation by putting sweat equity into properties. So that way it's very predictable on the, on the value increase um, on any of my properties. Uh, I never speculate. If I get natural appreciation on a deal, that's just a cherry on top, but I'm never gonna bank on that. Um, buying for cash flow. Right, I don't buy for speculation and, and hope. You know, like like where I saw a lot of people go wrong is they paid retail price for a property that they thought tomorrow would go up in value, and it didn't have any cash flow. And then right. when it didn't go up in value and it went down a little bit, they couldn't sell it. They didn't have exit strategies, and they didn't have any cash flow to cover the operating expenses or the holding costs or anything. And they ended up going bankrupt. The people who bought for cash flow, that cash flow covered the operating expenses. It covered the debt service. And it still put money in their pocket. So even if values on paper went to zero, they were still able to have value in that and ride out any sort of economic storm or, or market cycle. And uh, two, three, year, two, three, four years down the road, they paid down enough principal, the property appreciated, and all of a sudden, you know, they were able to sell it. So um, those were a few things, you know, uh, yeah, the type I mean, of financing, the type of sense. debt that you put on it. Yeah. The, the piece that you know, I'd like you to talk a little bit about is, is the number one, always buy at a discount because today's market is, like you said, it's a completely different market than it was back in 2009. And, and it's very difficult to find a deal that, you know, you you could buy at a discount. So um, talk through that piece a little bit. Yeah, I I would say twofold. Um, One is there's always deals. Right, and you just have to go through more numbers. You got to go. It's a it's a uh, a more in depth of a ratio, right? Like ten years ago, six out of ten deals would have been great deals. Today, it's one out of ten deals, and so you just have to go through more numbers and underwrite more deals and cast a wider net and mm-hmm. and sift through more trash in order to find those diamonds in the rough. 
but they're out there um, every single day, right? Like what are the, the four D's of motivated sellers? Death, disease, divorce, disaster. And, and there's a disaster happening. There was, there was a hurricane that just came through Louisiana, right? And I see pictures of towns that were just devastated. There's people who are taking insurance checks and walking away from their properties that you can go in, pick up those properties for pennies on the dollar and then make some improvements to them, right? So like disaster. Somebody passed away who's got a big investment portfolio and the kids want nothing to do with managing grandpa's or grandma's investment portfolio. And they, um, and they just want to cash out and they want to go on vacation and buy fancy cars and, uh, and stupid liabilities, right? And they just want a quick solution. Um, there's other people, right, who, who made money, lost money in other different business ventures and got kicked in the, in, in the stomach with, with, by, from the COVID pandemic and what happened to their other traditional business. And they need to, you know, get out of whatever their assets are. So like that stuff's happening every single day. Um, and yeah, uh, you just got to turn over more rocks in order no, to No, that makes rocks. sense. I was just, I just playing golf yesterday and one of my golfing buddies was talking about, you know, he's looking to buy some land. Um, and the landowner, I don't know, he owns like uh, close to 400 acres or something. And, and, um, he's an older gentleman who doesn't want to sell, but the kids, you know, they want him to sell because mm-hmm. they, they want their their fair their their share of that um, now, so that they yep. can go buy the the liabilities. So um, you know, one of the things you, you didn't use this word, but you know, when the when the market is the way it is today, where you have to sift through more, you all, you also have to be more patient, you know, and and not chase and run after you know every shiny object. So I, I think that that's very much that's, so. That's good I advice. Think, I think you got to do that. You got to go through more numbers. You got to be more patient. You don't you, like one of the things I don't force deals. I stress test the numbers on deals and I try to kill deals. If I can't kill it, that's when I know it's a good deal. Um, and then, and then the other thing is to your point, uh, you're going through more deals. You got to get more creative, right? So like the second part of this is going through more deals in order to, you know, sift through more numbers and figure out what that ratio is. And the second part of the deal is, how do you get more creative with the deal structure in order uh, so it does work, right? And, and, you know, it's very predictable on what investment properties are worth because it's all based on the income approach of what is the income minus the expenses equals the NOI. And a lot of people that I see only look at what are the rents and the laundry income and that's it. And then all the basic expenses. And so one of the things I was actually on a phone call right before this with, um, a firm that does a lot of property prop tech, right? Is like the new the new thing of property technologies on on how to um, increase income, decrease expenses. I'm invested in a venture capital fund that does a lot of this kind of stuff. And there's a lot of different ways to reduce the the operating expenses to create additional value, uh, because uh, you know you could increase the income of a building, but and it, and equally as balanced um, or equally. It equally impacts the NOI if you decrease the expenses of that of that apartment building as well. So we're always looking for ways to increase the income and decrease the expenses. I'll get, let me give you a quick example on a 550 unit building that I have that I bought in Texas earlier this year. Um, it's in Houston. Uh, you know, it was it was listed I don't know 70 million dollar apartment building deal, and. Um, you know, we're looking at it and it's, it was in good shape. It was pretty occupied. We had good financing terms, all that kind of stuff. And um, it was listed with a broker 
And then we're going to get 70, I think it was in the low 70 millions, 72, $73 million or something. And it was worth, you know, after a couple of years, it's worth $80 million, right? It's not a smoking deal. It's okay. Um, if you got access to money and you want to throw, you know, 15, 20 million bucks at this thing for the next couple of years, you're going to get a decent return, but nothing crazy on it. And, uh, uh, everybody's like, okay, I'm, most I can pay is 72, $72 million. We come in and we look at it through a different lens. How can we increase the income? And we realized that the unit mix was way off. And it was like, on, the, on 550 units, it was like 101 bedrooms, like 202 bedrooms, and 250 three bedrooms. And looking at that, we're like, the three bedrooms are rented for almost the same price as the one bedrooms because of the, the, there's not enough market demand for them. They were like 1400 bucks for the three bedrooms and it was 1200 bucks for a one bedroom. And what we realized is a lot of the three bedrooms were kind of townhouse style. About, about 100 of them we could take and cut in half. Wow. And, and make them two one bedroom apartments. Add a kitchen, just cut them in half, put a couple walls up, add a kitchen, and then all of a sudden, and separately, you know, separate the utilities. And all of a sudden, we're able to take um, something that was only getting 1400 bucks for that square footage, and now right. we're getting $2,400 for that square footage. And it was only a few thousand dollars more per unit in order to like turn it over. It was like an extra five, six grand or whatever. And so it cost us an extra like $5 million, let's say, in order to, um, no, it wasn't even that much. It was like, uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was an extra $3 million or something. So let's say, let's call it, I don't know, $20,000 in doors in order to separate them out. But we were able to find something and we were able to come in and, and be the top bidder or one of the top bidders on that property and pay retail price for what it is right now, realizing that we can cut these things in half and, and add $1,000 times 100 doors, it's $100,000 a month, it's 1.2 million a year at a 5% cap rate, which is what Houston appraises for. You know, you're adding 1.2 million divided by 0.05, 5.5% cap rate adds $22 million of value to the property for investing about $3 million. So we saw something that other people weren't able to see and we were able to create and get into a deal that's now worth $105 million and we're all into it for like $77 million. So that's a deal in the peak of, of this market that we were able to still come in and make it make sense because we looked at it through a different lens that a lot of other people weren't looking at. So you still bought it at, you know, what the broker thought was retail, but mm-hmm. you know they had what it was identified, performing at right then and there. It was right. retail price. They didn't identify all the different factors that could have been, uh, you know, used in in operating that property in a different way. Right. Um, that I love that story. You know, and I think that when people first get into the space, they think that everybody underwrites exactly the same. And, you know, how do you differentiate yourself? And you just talked about one way. Um, I don't know if you read the book uh, by Sam Zell, um, but, you know, he said that he became like the top, you know, commercial real estate guy because he was creative. And Mm -hmm. I don't, you know, at first, you don't really think of real estate as being creative. You think of creative as being like, arts, you know, music and, and painters and that sort of thing. But, you know, having to look at a deal and look at it from a different lens, as you said, can make a huge, huge impact. It's a science and an art, this business. 
Fantastic. And if you can if you can dial in both of those, like you're going to be there's some there's some hard skills and there's a lot of soft skills of dealing with tenants and you know lenders and joint venture partners and private private money people and all that stuff and in getting creative on what are you doing with the actual canvas, right? Like what are we doing with the actual property and how can we how can we make it more beautiful? How can we increase the income, decrease the expenses? So yeah, you, you make a really good point on that. And, you know, every deal you learn from. So, you know, either you or somebody on your team probably ran across that type of thing on another deal you know, or heard, heard of it from another person that they networked with and heard the story. And so that sticks in somebody's mind. And now all of a sudden you take that knowledge and you apply it in, in the real world and a real example. So that's huge. Hey, um, so these people that have said that they work with you and they, they think you're a great guy and have helped them. And, you know, how is it, and I don't even recall who it was or um, what capacity, but so what do you do for helping others in terms of getting in the space and learning? Yeah, I, um, you know, what's funny is my mom was a teacher. I had mentioned that a little bit earlier. So she had a teaching degree and she was always very um, involved in the school district and PTA and giving and community development, and, um, you know, education and kids and all that stuff. And I got like this education and giving uh, bite from, you know, like, like, like this, like uh, got bit by that from her. And so, uh, you know, when I started doing deals, I started just talking about how I was doing deals, how I structured it, how I raised the money, and how I put this together. And let me walk around the house and, and show on my camera, you know, the, some of the improvements that we're making. And it was remarkable, like how many people reached out and how much engagement that got of people saying, dude, this is amazing. You know, I want to buy an apartment building. Can I buy one from you? Or, hey, I, I just, uh, I'm a residential broker and I just came across an apartment. I don't know what to do with it. Do you want to buy it? Or, hey, man, I came across a deal. I want to take it down, but I don't have the balance sheet or the way to raise money. Can we partner up in joint venture? Or, hey, I love what you're doing. I'm sitting on some cash. Can I lend you money? Right? So I was getting deal flow. I was getting buyers from it. I was getting private money investors. And then a lot of people started sending me a message saying, hey, do you consult? Do you coach? Can you put together an event? Can I come out? and pay you to, to consult with me and teach me this stuff. And I had so many messages on that front that I ended up putting together just a, a little boot camp that we call Commercial Empire, or just teach people how to scale into apartments. It's not really for newbies, it's more for like people who have done a few deals and they're trying to scale into growing their resident, or I'm sorry, their rental portfolio. Um, and that's really what I, what I talk about. And here, here's how we sourced off-market deals direct to seller. Here's how we raise private money. Here's how we underwrite these deals. Here's how we structure the financing. Here's how we oversee project management, property management, asset management, exit strategies, disposition, my business development side of how I built my team and all this other stuff. And so like, and then I have some discussion panels. I share all of my resources and all that stuff, all the people that I do business with. And, um, and then that just turned into you know, I'm thinking I'm going to make a few bucks from it, right? And then all of a sudden it turned into more deal flow and more private money investors. A lot of people came out and they're like, the active operators that fell in that, that category. And they said, hey, this is, um, this is amazing. I'm going to go take down a bunch of deals. And anything that's bigger than what I could take down, Tim, I'm calling you. Will you partner with me? I was like, yeah, hell yeah. I'll help me get into more deals, help you get into more deals. And all of a sudden we're building wealth together. That sounds awesome. And then there were other people who were, who were like more passive and they're like, love what you're doing, don't want to do it, but I have money or access to money. Let me just deploy it with you right. and, uh, and open us up for, for more, more private money. So 
if you got those two things, deal flow and money flow, you could do a lot of deals, right? Right. Now, in order to keep those deals, you need really refined operations. And that's one of the other things that actually the education has helped me do. It made me refine my operations even more because people are looking at me and they're like dissecting how I do things and why I do things. And I was like, I need to make sure that the checklists are in place and the SOPs are in place and the KPIs are in place and all that stuff. So it's, um, it's been a really, really cool thing. And then I have, so there's been a lot of people that have come through that. And then I have like an ongoing mastermind um, where we're kind of like, we're a support network and kind of like a board of directors for people's business who can't um, or don't want to take on the overhead for having a big board of directors and pay a bunch of six figure salaries, but we're available on a daily basis to do like a group zoom call and do Q and a and all that kind of stuff. So that's really it. And that's all, that's all I do. No, on the it's education it's side awesome. Those two you things. know, but it's, it's pretty you know, powerful. Start, yeah. It started with people reaching out to you and saying, Hey, can you do this? You know, I, I'd like to invest some money to learn and, you know, can you spend some time to, to kind of push your knowledge off to us? And, um, now do you do that in, is that in Charleston or where, where do you do that? Yeah. So my, my boot camp is just virtual. And I do about okay. four of them. I do it four times a year, about once a quarter. And it's just a two-day virtual boot camp. Um, and so anybody can plug in from anywhere on those. And then my, my masterminds, yeah, we, we do. Um, uh, it's mostly virtual, obviously, on the, on the group Zoom calls and stuff. But uh, we get together about four times a year in fun locations. And, uh, you know, we're going to be down in Orlando, Florida, like right on Disney property in November. And we're going to bunch of amazing speakers. Steve Forbes is coming out to speak and um, some of the really influential people. So kind of, you know, uh, the idea is to cultivate the relationships and cultivate the networking. And uh, that's where the magic happens with these groups is, is by being in those, you know, stimulate some ideas during the day in the more formal type setting, and then really set them up for uh, an awesome, um, more social type setting in the afternoon, which is where the relationships, the breakthroughs, the ideas, the strategies, and all that kind of stuff really happens. And uh, amazing joint ventures, amazing partnerships, and more amazing uh, opportunities that come that come from that. So we just want to stimulate those environments, and it's um, made a big impact on a lot of people. And so you know we keep on doing it. That's fantastic. And you know you said you need you wanted to make a few bucks. You know so you do it, you make some money. But then it sounds like you're a guy that you're like, all right, well, I made some money on this. Now I'm going to reinvest a piece of it back into make it even better. And so you, you bring more and more value to all the people that, that come, you know, keep coming your way. I'm not like a, I'm not like the guru who makes money from being a teacher, right? 90% of my wealth is built with my apartments, right? This is like 10%. So to me, it doesn't, it's nice, but it doesn't like move the needle. Uh, right. But it, it helps the real estate investment side of our business, obviously. Uh, but I, you know, I could take all that money. I can just roll it forward into more resources, more access to the content and uh, awesome ideas and opportunities and events and all that kind of stuff. So it's kind of it's kind of fun and it's kind of cool. And uh, we just have an amazing community of a lot of very giving people. And um, you know, like, like I mentioned earlier, like I did it to make money and for deals. And now it's more of an impact piece. Now it's like, I wanted to help, you know, I want to make some money myself. And then I wanted to help other people make money. And now it's like, I want to help everybody in my tribe become leaders and impact another thousand people, right? If I can help a thousand, thousand people become millionaires, that's great. I made a billion dollars of value. If I can make a thousand people leaders that then each impact another thousand people, that's a trillion dollars. And value. Right. That's, a, that's a needle mover. You it's, know what I mean? That's crazy. It's crazy. 
Hey, so you, I, I saw a post with you um, pretty recently, probably in the last few weeks, and you were wearing a shirt that I loved, and it said, uh, goals, set them up, knock them down. So, <laughs> you know, talk, talk about that because I, you know, I think that just simply writing your goals down, you know, differentiates you from, you know, probably 90% of the people in the this, masses, in this sure. world, you know? Um, so talk about, you know, what, what your thought process was in, in wearing that shirt and putting that together and your yeah. view on goals. Yeah, I think, you know, early on, before you have success, before I had success, you know, you hear about you know, make positive affirmations in front of the mirror and write down your goals and the universe will respond and all, like very ethereal kind of things. And um, the good news is I was broke enough that I just didn't care if it was uh, goofy or not. If I just did it. <laughs> right? Right. it. It was better than the situation I was in. You know what I mean? Right. Um, and so that was like, uh, I just wrote down the goals. Right? I went to some conference and there, somebody's like, write out a hundred things you want to accomplish before you die. Or like kind of a bucket list, right? Things you want to see, things you want to buy, things you want to own. Like, what does your bucket list look like? And it's pretty easy to get the first 20, 30, maybe even 40 things. It gets hard when you're getting into the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. Like, well, I don't know what else to like. What else is there after buying a fancy car and a fancy house and this and, and like, and all of a sudden you're like, oh well, it turns into more impact pieces. It turns into more legacy kind of pieces. It turns into more like, like long term longevity and uh, uh, you know paying it forward kind of stuff, which is kind of cool. And, uh, but anyways, on that list, one of the first 20 was to own an island. And I wrote down, I want to own an island. I want to own a beach house. I want to own a mountain house. There was some of those material kind of things uh, back in my early 20s. And I didn't know how it was going to happen. I didn't, I didn't have a plan in place. Um, I just wrote it down because, you know, they said the universe would respond. And um, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if there's a scientific method or path or, you know, the... Uh, uh, this, the, the secret kind of thing of, of you attract whatever you put out there kind of, kind of, yeah, there's probably something to that. But essentially, I, I wrote it down. I knew it was a goal. I knew it's something that I've, I've had in the back of my mind for 15 years. And I just put my head down and started working on building wealth through apartments. And I wasn't really looking for, for an island, but I was looking for some land to come up with like, like a, you know, kind of a unique Airbnb type of an opportunity, whether that be a beach house or more like a plantation style house, sometime, somewhere in South Carolina or coastal Georgia. And this hundred acre plus parcel popped up and I, I, I'm like, I can't find the address on this thing. It's because it was an entire island. It was a 110 acre island with another 350 acres of marshland around it and had a single family house and a dock and infrastructure and all that stuff on it. And uh, I was like, Done. This is it, right? I can't not do this, right? Like, like I found it on Zillow two months ago. And I'm thinking like, so I don't know. So this was put in front of me for some reason. And the price point was not that bad where I was like, it's, it's in mainland the United States. It's right next to Hilton Head Island. Like I'm, I'm looking at Hilton Head Island for my island. And, uh, and it's 110 acres, right? Like uh, Richard Branson's Island, 74 acres. So, you know, it's like, this is a pretty decent size island. And I'm thinking man, like, like, I can't not do this. I, I got to take this thing down. And, um, you know, I, 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 it's ready, fire, and then aim kind of a thing is usually how I operate. And I like putting those constraints on myself, right? I like contracting something and then figuring it out because it, it, 
it creates constraints, right? Like before constraints used to happen to me. A lender would back out on, on Friday before a Monday closing and I got to go and raise $4 million over a weekend, right? That, whenever there's a constraint, I have these big uh, leaps forward in business and success and opportunities and stuff because of these, you know, when you get uncomfortable, all of a sudden you have these big breakthroughs. And um, uh, so now instead of constraints happening to me, I try to create constraints myself. And that's one of those things that I did. I just contracted it and I was like, I will figure this thing out. And I went and structured the money and I raised the capital and um, put a business plan in place. I didn't know how I was going to monetize it, but we figured that out just by talking with friends and talking to people about it, visiting the island a few times, doing all the due diligence. And, um, and we closed on it last week, actually. Uh, contractors are cleaning up the existing infrastructure and we got a great plan in place, meeting with the city next week. And um, yeah, just kind of kind of wild, man. You don't really know how you're going to get there, but I think the more important thing is know what the destination is, yeah. and then you'll figure out the path, right? If yeah. you know the destination, then you can create the roadmap in order to get to wherever you want to be. Well, first of all, congratulations. That's that's an awesome story. <laughs> Thanks, I mean, son. you're the, you're the only person I've interviewed that has told me that they <laughs> they had a goal of buying an island and they did it. You yeah. know, um, but you said a lot of great things there. I mean, you know. The destination, you know, when you're writing your goals down, that's what you're doing is you're, you're, you're writing down where you want to be, the destination. And, you know, somebody had told me a story about, um, you know, goal writing and, you know, just imagine going to the airport and showing up at the ticket counter and the lady says, where do you want to go? And you say, I don't know. Yeah. Well, you know, like the, you know, the airline attendant is not going to be able to write you a ticket you know, mm -hmm. without you telling them where you want to go. And so many people in life, they may think that it's time wasted to write down those goals. But if you don't write them down, a week goes by, a month goes by, three months goes by, a year, two, three, five years, and you didn't get where you wanted to go because mm -hmm. you didn't have that focus. Mm -hmm. um, so that's that's huge. The other thing that you said, which I love, was you know, both being uncomfortable and figure it out. You know, there, I think there's a lot of people and I'm sure that you run across this with people and you have to advise people on the real estate side. You know, a lot of people want to know all the answers and have all the ducks in a row before they pull the trigger. Mm -hmm. And, you know, at some point, you know, there's a leap of faith that you're going to, you're just going to have to do it and then figure it out. You're mm -hmm. not going to know everything. It's not going to be all on a silver platter for you. Mm -hmm. um, so, man, from one house in 2009 to over 4,000 apartments. Crazy, right? Well, yeah. <laughs> blue, well, some blue-collared kid from Cleveland, Ohio was able well, to do it. Well, if, you know what? if I can do it, anybody can do it, it right? right? If you can do it, anybody can do it. But... You know, you're you're obviously a man of action, you know, so that differentiates, you know, from from other people that may be afraid, you know. So talk about well, fear. Like, yeah, you know? think about like, this, right? Yeah, like yeah. what is the worst case scenario, right? Like right. you 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 brought the word fear. Fear is yeah. uh, the exact direction that I wanted to go with this. And you think about fear. All right, how how is fear comes from, right? And, and it actually releases hormones in your body that, that tell you a fight or flight kind of a thing and, and get scared, don't go down that 
dark hallway and don't go, um, you know, do anything that could put you in danger kind of a thing. And uh, to me, like that made sense, right? Because fear is, is something that we feel in order to keep us safe, but it's something that has been instilled with, for, for, I don't know, 3 million years since human beings have been on the planet or whatever, right? And like we needed fear to not walk down the dark wooded area, it, you know, uh, during the, uh, the last, I don't know, uh, polar ice cap, whatever, you know, and because a saber tooth tiger could jump on your neck and eat you, right? And like fear saved you from actual danger. But fear, we have associated with danger. And now a lot of the danger is not there. But we still associate anytime we get the failing of fear with life-threatening danger. Okay, so now let's talk about buying a house. You buy a house, you feel fearful, and people have the same hormones going through them as if they're getting attacked by a saber-toothed tiger, right? As if they're going to die. And at the end of the day, if you buy a house for $100,000, oh my gosh, it's a $100,000 risk. Is it? Or is it, you know, even if you sold it and you fire sold it next week and you sold it at a loss, you could still sell it for probably $90,000 and it's a $10,000 risk, not a $100,000 risk, you know? So like, I think re reclassifying things like that, realizing fear is not real. Fear is the exact same thing as faith, right? They're both believing in something that's never happened. They're both believing in some set of circumstances that has not yet occurred and may never occur. The difference though is fear is negative and faith is positive. And if it's, if it's just a story in our head, guess what? That means we're making it up, which means we get to choose whether we want to be positive or we want to be negative. And so if you get a choice, I don't know, I just go down the road of being positive. I'd rather be faithful, right? Instead of, uh, instead of fearful. And I'd, I'd rather look at, hey, you know, oh, don't buy that apartment because the contractor could burn you. The seller's probably lying to you. The, uh, the tenants are all going to move out and the city's going to be on your tail and da, da, da you could lose a bunch of money. Yeah, I, I could also get rich, right? I could also right. build wealth. I could also create cash flow that allows me to retire my wife or it allows me to retire my parents. That allows me to send my kids to any school I could ever imagine to, you know, live a lifestyle and visit places that people only read about in magazines. Like, I don't know. I'd rather focus on that stuff rather right. than focusing on the negative stuff. No, that's huge. I, th I think that, you know, you said, um, you know, what's the worst case scenario? And, that's been a common theme I've heard from a lot of different, very successful real estate investors that said, you know, they think to themselves, like, what's the worst thing that could happen here? And can I live with that? And most of them are like, you know what? Yeah, I could live with that. And then, and then they look to mitigate those risks and then they think of the upside and the upside is so much better. Um, so why not go for that? You know, interesting, you know, when you're talking about the fear, you know, made me think of high school football. Like, look, if you're the, if you're running at some, the opponent and you slow up, you're actually going to get more hurt than if you are going full speed and, and drive completely through the, you know, the other opponent where that doesn't really make sense to, to a lot of people. Like, you know, look, you slow down, you're being careful, but you could actually get clobbered, you know, that way versus, you know, driving through and, and having that momentum on your side. And I think that that's what you've done since buying that one single family. 
you focused on trying to keep your mind positive, and that has created this massive momentum that has con- yeah, completely I, I snowballed in a good way. You got a, you got a great point. I think it's I think it's um, twofold. A lot of people think I need to add all this positive stuff to my life um, in order to have success, and that is that is part of it. But equally as important is removing the negative stuff. Is removing every anything that's holding you back, any toxic relationships, toxic thoughts, toxic philosophies, and if you just remove the negative, just you know by by. Uh, universal law, something's going to go and fill that void. And chances are, it's going to be more positive and more optimistic and, and better for you than whatever the negativity is that you're, that you're removing anyways. So I think eliminating, that's one of the things I've been very intentional is getting rid of all the negativity, getting rid of bad relationships, getting rid of any toxic people in my life. Anybody who talks smack about me on social media, like, you know, if, if it's constructive feedback, absolutely. I'm going to, I'm going to engage and talk with them and, and, um, I think that's, that's healthy. If it's just negativity and they're just trying to pull you down, I don't have time for that. Life's too short. And I just remove that all, all together. And, um, uh, and I've, I've, I've removed a lot of the negativity from my life. You know, I don't watch, you know, desperate housewives and I don't watch, um, you know, stupid mind numbing type of TV. I don't listen to the gangster rap that I used to wa- listen to back in high school and college. You know, <laughs> now I listen to things that are more positive, more optimistic, more um, uh, uh, you know, insightful and in you know, uh, um, uplifting. I guess. And so um, I do that with TV. I do that with music. I do that with relationships. I do that with business. I do that with everything that I do. So um, I try to remove the negative and add the positive. Yeah. I mean, wow. I mean, yeah, this is a real estate show, but this is real mindset stuff because the biggest stumbling block for most people is between your ears, you know, is, is your mind. And what are you putting in your, in your mind, positive or negative? The other thing is, is just, you know, surrounding yourself with other people that have done what you want to do or, or, um, you know, maybe it's not, you know, like your mentors, your people that you look up to probably have changed over the years. Like when you bought that one, uh, you know, mm-hmm. one unit uh, house, you were looking at one person, but now you're at a completely different level. You're probably looking at somebody completely different. And I think that that's so important because a lot of your friends and family may not have done what you your dreams and your goals are. And mm-hmm. so they could have good intentions, but they could talk you out of, you know, going after what you want. And if you can get around the right people that can encourage you, that's, that's huge. Yeah. And I think there's people in your life that don't know that they're holding you back and they're not meaning, they're right, not doing right. it in a, in a reason to, to try to hold you back. But like my dad, like my dad is, is my idol, right? He's, he's, um, uh, I've looked up to him my entire life, and I think it's it's a protective instinct, right? Like he's been through, he's shoveled crap for a long time in his traditional business, right? He had to go and miss uh, less less for me and my my little sister, but more for my my older brothers. Is like he sacrificed a lot of family time in order to go and build the business and go to school, and it was work, work, work all the time. And uh, I remember, you know, um, some people no called, no showed. 
you know, their job or their responsibility on Christmas morning, my dad had to go in and cover that shift, you know? And so like, I think he knows how stressful and difficult it can be to grow a small business. And he was always like, you know, just, just go get a job, right? Just go be safe and go do that. And it, and it wasn't that he didn't believe in me or that he didn't want me to have success or be an entrepreneur. It was just like, I think he knew how difficult it was for him and some of the sacrifices that would need to be made in order to build a successful business. And, um, you know, whether he thought it was worth it or not, or just didn't want to see his, his little boy go through a lot of those same sacrifices and hurdles, I think is, is part of, part of that. So, uh, you know, I, I say that because I think there's other people who, you know, you got family members, people you love, people you respect, people that, that care about you and you care deeply about as well, who are saying, Hey, you know, just calm down, lay off the gas, pump the brakes, (laughs) you know, play it safe, play it cool. Like, what does that mean? Does that mean play it small? Does that mean don't push my limits of what I think I can achieve? Does that mean like, and I, so I like, I understand where they come from and I respect them and I appreciate them. But I also understand that that's the space that they're, they're coming from. And I'm, I'm not going to let that influence me. And I'm, I'm going to, you know, there's a lot, not a lot of people who think for themselves, unfortunately. Right. And you got to just be emotionally intelligent, ask a lot of questions and asking a lot of questions will lead you down a path of asking better questions, more progressive questions and getting more, uh, more answers, better, better answers, more progressive type answers to your, whatever your hurdles are. Yeah, that's huge. So you, you mentioned uh, sacrifices. What kind of sacrifices did you have to make um, as you were growing this business? Oh, man. Um, it, it, I mean, you know, a couple of the first things that come to... I, I've always been pretty intentional trying to separate, you know, family time from work time. So that way I'm, I'm more present with family. Um, but like right now, Right, I'm I'm moved to Charleston, South Carolina. I don't have an office here, so I have my desk is in my living room, and my son is right there playing as you and I are talking. I don't know if you can hear him in the background, but he's like, "Daddy, will you come play with me?" And I was like, "As much as I want to go and play, right? I I need to differentiate to say, hey, in order to own a house on the beach and own this and own that, like I got to be in the zone for at least six hours a day, four days a week, right, and doing work." It's hard for him to differentiate that in his mind. He thinks daddy's home, daddy should be playing. Right? How old is his son? He's four. Four, yeah. That's, yeah. And then that's tough for a four-year-old. Yeah. And so like that's that's been really, really hard on me of like, I just need to leave the house. But then, you know, traveling to go to a coffee shop and then, you know, ordering coffee and then sitting there and not having the right internet connection, all this other stuff. It's like it's an extra hour of my day that I that I'm not here, right. Or I can't be doing business. And, you know, it's just like, it's all that kind of stuff that I, all right. So I just make it easy and and do the work here. But then he's looking at me right now. I see you, buddy. (laughs) I'm going to come play a puzzle with you in a minute. Okay. (laughs) That's great. And so, you know what I mean? Like that's, that's kind of tough, at least on me. And, and, you know, hopefully I'm present enough where I'm, when I'm not here working that um, he appreciates that. And, um, you know, but I, I think, sacrifices from a, a, a team building perspective of being a bad manager, being a bad leader early on and not, you know, screening my team properly, not training my team properly, not measuring their performance properly. Like essentially just saying, you know, Hey, w- welcome, welcome to the shit show, right? Throwing them into the, like, and say, Hey, good luck and figure it out. And, and this is how we work in a small business. And uh, I burned out a lot of really, really good people that way, unfortunately. And, um, 
some great people who I would love to have on my team still today. And just, I, I wasn't a good leader. And um, I think that's, you know, a natural growing pain though. You know, I don't, uh, you know, do I regret it? Do I not regret it? Like, would I change anything, whatever, but um, you know, I wish I would have been better, but I, I wouldn't be where I am today if I didn't go through some of that stuff. And um, you know, being a good steward of capital is because I messed up. It's because I bought Mercedes and uh, when I didn't have the money to buy it, when I because I joined private clubs when I didn't have the money to join them, when because I, I went on vacations to exotic places when I didn't have the money to go to those places. Like I did all those things and messed up really, really bad, and learned from those experiences. And I think as long as you learn, it's okay, you know, to do some of that stuff. But um, I, I, you know, from a sacrifice standpoint, I try to be very vigilant with my time and how I spend my time and where I spend my time. And um, when I'm in the zone working, I'm in the zone working, right? My family knows that and um, they, they try not to interrupt me. And if I'm hanging out with family, then I try to be 100% in the zone with the family, not checking the phone, not checking email and doing all that kind of stuff. And obviously I'm not perfect with it. It spills over. And, uh, but I think just being conscious of it and understanding that um, it's something I want to work on, I'm trying to work on is better than if you're not doing those things, you know? Yeah, I mean, number of things, one, Look, you, you've got you've had a ton of success, but you know you're very upfront that you know you've you've had lessons learned along the way. You've tripped up. You've some some things you've goofed up on. And you look, we are always learning, right, and trying to get better. And there's no final destination. It's like always when one thing you're, you're trying to get better in another area or just trying to improve in in certain areas, but. You know, sacrifices, I think that, you know, when I think of the listeners and I think of people that are either trying to break into real estate space or they're trying to scale that, look, it you are going to have to sacrifice something. You know, it may be that, yeah, you, you have this income, but you're going to live off a much smaller percentage of it so that you can siphon off some money so that you can get into some, some deals, you mm-hmm. know, and that's a sacrifice. A lot of people want to do the nice vacations and have the nice cars, the nice house. And then they wonder why they're stuck in a W2 job forever. You know, every time they get a raise, Very they point. up their, you know, their spending. And so, or, and I've talked to others where they're like, well, look, I, you know, I, I saved my W2 job and I wanted to have family life. When the kids went to bed, I would underwrite, you know, a ton of deals and mm-hmm. start and put in offers and that sort of thing. Well, you know, somewhere along the line, you're going to have to invest time if you want to grow your wealth in real estate. And For sure. you, you're going to have to, you know, figure out where that's going to come from. Yep. I think, I think, you know, sacrificing sleep is definitely one that I've done of just, I work in the middle of the night, you know, I'll put the kids to bed, fall asleep, wake up at one, two o'clock and work for three hours and then go back to bed. Uh, because then you don't have the, the distractions of not, not just not, I'm not talking about family. I'm talking about like emails, ping ponging right. back and forth, you know, and people replying, like I get most done in a few hours in the middle of the night versus six hours in the middle of the day. Um, and then, uh, so that's definitely, and, and then I would say I sacrificed a lot of the TV shows and movies and stuff like that, going out, partying and, a lot of that early on in my 20s when I was trying to build the business up, when a lot of my friends were, you know, drunk at bars and chasing girls around and stuff, I was just focused. I, and, and not saying that I didn't 
you know, go have fun and, and do those things. I just didn't do it as much, right? I didn't right. do it four days a week. I did it one day a week, a kind of a thing. And so uh, there's definitely sacrifices, but it's not like, you know, it's not anything that, that you're going to miss a year from now, right? Like, it's not like I, I you know, uh, had any no, major, No, I mean, look, you've been extremely you successful, and, and I'm sure you're, you're thankful that you made those sacrifices. Yeah, but for sure. There's, you know, in, in the moment, there were other people that were enjoying going out four days a week, and that's what yep. they wanted to do, and that's where they spent their time. Mm -hmm. Hey, talk about um, freedom, what that means to you. And then two, with all your success, you know, you really don't need to be, you know, building all the this legacy, you know, network and helping other people. And so talk about freedom and talk about why do you, why do you still do it? Yeah, yeah, good questions, man. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, I think, I think, Early on, when I was naive, I wanted the fancy material type stuff. And that's why I pursued money. As I, as I, you know, become more aware, I realize it's not about the money and the money things can buy, but it's what it can do, right? And the options it can give you. And um, uh, you know, where do you want to send your kids to school, right? Do your does your spouse want to work or not, right? And um, uh, can you travel, right? Instead of being handcuffed to a desk or a W two job. And uh, can you go and travel the world for two months, three months, five months, six months, whatever? And um, it just, it gives you the, uh, it gives you options, right? And it gives you a lot of different opportunities that you can pursue and a lot of different freedoms. I, I'm an entrepreneur, not necessarily for, I like the limitless income potential, but really for the, the freedom and not having anybody else tell me what to do and being able to kind of dictate what my schedule is. I mean, right. dude, can you imagine going you to a job? You still work really hard, but you get to do yeah. it on your own terms. I, I couldn't imagine asking, as a grown man, asking somebody else if I can take my family on a vacation for a week. Right. Asking somebody else if I can leave the office at five o'clock. Asking somebody else if I can go take a leak in the bathroom midday. Like, I, I, as, a, as a grown adult, can you imagine? I couldn't even fathom that at, at this stage in my life. And there's people who do that. And it just boggles my mind that you are a grown adult. And, and, and it's just, it, it's, it's like you're, you're a pet of something. Like anyways, the freedom piece is very, very important to me. Um, and, and, you know, the, the legacy piece of why do you do it, um, I, 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 don't, I haven't overcome major sacrifices in my life where, like, you know, I, I, I was raised with two parents who loved the hell out of me and uh, lived on less to give us more and sent us to school, played for my college, like uh, gave us opportunities. You know, we weren't rich, but we, we had never hungry. You know, like there's people who have overcome a lot more than me um, in their life. And so uh, I don't really have a reason, right, to not be successful, right? Like there's other people who could use their their shortcomings in life as a crutch. I don't have, I don't have that. And so I have an obligation that I feel like to sh like, there's other people who sacrificed a lot. People I've never even met in, in, you know, fought wars and relatives who traveled to this country that I never knew who, you know, and sacrificing whatever. And my dad working his tail off, my mom working her tail off and all this stuff. And I'm like, I don't have an excuse to not be successful. I need to be successful in order to pay homage to them 
for all the sacrifices that they've made. And that's, that's a, uh, one driving factor. Another one is like, I, I think there's not enough leaders in the world. I think there's not enough um, people making enough of an impact. And, uh, and I want people to realize like if a blue collar kid from Cleveland can do this stuff and like, what can those opportunities look like, right? People are like, oh my God, it's such an inspiration that, you know, you bought an island. Like I need to level up my goals. I love that kind of stuff. Cause I love right. seeing people. I love helping people see themselves as more than what they could see themselves as without me helping, yes. right? Like they're able to see themselves as being more, achieving more, doing more, making a bigger impact. And that's like the stuff that feeds the soul now. Yep. So yeah, there's a piece that, you know, um, builds the wealth and gives you that, that financial flexibility and freedom. Um, but there's another piece that's just like about being a, you know, feeds the soul and, and being a good human and like mm -hmm. impacting others and seeing how, you know, any, something that you did helped somebody else achieve something that, you know, you may not get paid for that, but that just pays you internally so much. Mm -hmm. So that, that's huge. Hey, what do you like to do outside of work? Oh man, I went for a hour long walk on the beach this morning with my dog. And uh, when I'm back in Tough Cleveland- Tough life, go, the violins are playing for you right now. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, I like being out in nature. Anything that I can be outside active in nature, that's what I love to do. So when I'm back in Northern Ohio, I'm walking in the woods all the time with my dog and um, hanging out there. Um, I'm down here on the beach, I'm on the paddle board. I'm, uh, we just got a little pontoon boat for the, uh, for the island. I've never been like a big boater, but I'm trying to get out on the water a little bit more. That's kind of fun. I'm gonna get into fishing. Um, and you know, my kids are at an age where they're just like learning all the time, right? So like my daughter learned how to ride a bike last year and she learned how to swim last year and she uh, learned how to cast a fishing rod last year and uh, work on some of that stuff with my, with my little guy too. And I think like those, I mean, I mean that, those are life lessons, right? Like those are, those are how to ride a bike, how to read, how to write. Like this is, you learn a lot at the age of five that sets you up for the rest of your life. And so um, realizing that and seeing that with my daughter like, and knowing that my son is like on the verge, on the cusp of that is, is kind of fun, interesting. And I want to make sure I'm there for that. Um, you know, just going out, hanging out, having fun. You know, I, I, I like playing sports more than I like watching sports. Um, I love hanging out and just talking shop, right? Having a beer and just talking business, talking about life, talking about philosophy, talking about logic and reason and um, ideas and all that kind of stuff. That just, that's interesting stuff for me. So, Fantastic. Uh, yeah, man. So if somebody wants to reach out to you or learn more about you, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, I think social media probably. And um, yeah, I'm very active on Facebook. I'm very active on Instagram. I have a, a YouTube channel called Legacy Wealth. We're putting out a couple pieces of content per week on there. Uh, some really, really good stuff. And uh, uh, I'm, act, I'm on TikTok even. I'm on LinkedIn, obviously. So like, yeah, just find me on any of the, any of the social media platforms and, and hit me up on there. If I can help anybody, I'd happy to point you in the right direction and share some resources and connections or whatever that looks like. So Fantastic. Do you, I appreciate you having me, man. Darren, do you have you a website a also? Questions? Yeah, LegacyWealthHoldings.com. Legacy wealthholdings.com fantastic i will include that in the show notes and um tim really appreciate you coming on the show um it was great to get to know you more and uh what a great freaking story holy cow <laughs> how old are you now 36 36 so listeners listen 
Look, look, man, it starts with one. You got to get your first investment property and then just continue learning and, and let that momentum take you forward. So uh, Tim, again, thanks for being on the show. Listeners, I hope you enjoyed that one. Until next week, signing off. Thanks, Darren. Thank you for listening to Darren Batchelder's Real Estate Investing Show at darrenbatchelder.com. If you liked the episode, please provide us with a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast platform of choice. If you already provided us with a five-star review, then thank you. And please share the show with a friend.